Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Mystery writer Margaret Marin died of a stroke on February 23, 2021, at the age of 82. At the time of her death, she'd written 20 Judge Deborah Knott mysteries, nine Sigrid Harold mysteries, two other novels, and two collections of short stories. She won an Edgar Award for Best Novel in 1993 and for Best Short Story in 2002, and was named a Grand Master by the Mystery Writers of America in 2013. Along with writing about complex women characters, her books were focused on her native North Carolina, its life and its politics. This interview for KPFA's Probabilities program was recorded on June 6, 1994, when she was on tour for her third Deborah Knott novel, Shooting Loons. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. The interview was digitized and re-edited in March 2021 and represents the first time it's been heard in over a quarter century and the first time the complete interview has ever seen the light of day. You live in North Carolina, which is the location of the Deborah Knott books, correct? That's right. Uh, how far is that from Norfolk, Virginia? About halfway through the state. I live just a little southeast of Raleigh. North Carolina considers itself the veil of humility between two mountains of arrogance. The latest book, Shooting at Loons, is uh, very, very uh, geographical, I think, in its orientation. As I was mm-hmm. reading it, I, I had the oddest... A uh, sense of deja vu, and and my wife says, oh, "Why you got that weird look on your face? Did you sit down crooked again?" I said, <laughs> "No, I'm I'm trying to think of what author she reminds me of." And then it came back to me, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. I remember the yearling, of course, very clearly. And as a child, I did read the book. Yes, indeed. People have also compared me to Carson McCullers. They Mm -hmm. say that uh, Deborah is scout all grown up, and I got that comment so much that I had never read her, but I did go back and and reread her. And I must say, Scout's voice does remind me of Deborah, or rather I remind me of of Scout. Well, how how do you feel about this notion of of regional writing, uh, attempting for a sense of place, a sense of of the way the language is spoken in a different region? I'm all for it. I think as television and the great mobility of the 90s homogenizes out the country, it's really nice to have these regional differences. I don't think they'll ever completely disappear, no matter whether everybody plays fruit basket and everybody goes and lives in everybody else's home areas. I think climate, uh, climactic conditions, they're always going to influence how a people responds to life. 
you're never going to get away from the humidity. You cannot air condition the whole south totally. There's always going to be dog flies and mosquitoes and copperhead snakes and all of the, the regional flora and fauna that I think will continue to influence regions. So you think that, that there is something there that is stronger than uh, cultural than homogenization? Mm -hmm. Every time we start thinking that that we run the world, Mother Nature turns around and slaps us down. I mean, you you guys certainly know that with all the earthquakes oh. and the fires and the uh, droughts. You you don't get too far from it. We've had a number of guests in uh, in in our probability studio of the, over the past few months and more over the past few years, of course, who emphasize this regionalism. We had uh, Dana Stabenow, who is an Alaska writer, mm -hmm. Sandra West-Powell from uh, Montana. Uh, I don't know that it's so much that we're <clears throat> emphasizing regionalism is that we're writing truthfully and not artificially. We are writing out of our own experiences. When I first started writing mysteries, I thought they had to be set either in New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles, that this was the only thing that interested the rest of the country. Mysteries are an artificial form, and therefore you start with this artificiality of the murder and usually an amateur sleuth, and we know it doesn't really happen that way, but then everything else around it has to be real. And so those of us who have decided to write about our home areas, I think we, we're trying to be honest about it. And in a mystery, it's the things that are wrong that are the red herrings and that stand out. So therefore, we try to be as accurate as possible in our settings so that when we drop the, the clues in, this gives our reader a chance to say, oh, no, that's not right. Uh, that must be significant. And because we are trying to write truthfully of where we are, it comes out regional because we are all over. A number of mystery writers say that the mystery is something, a plot to tack on to what they really want to say. It sounds to me as if you're really going for the mystery. Mm -hmm. Of course I am. There have been essays written on why so many women write mysteries. They're kind enough to say why so many intelligent women write mysteries, and I appreciate that. And one of the suggestions is that certain women are not willing to strip their souls bare in public. And therefore, if you start with an artificial form, which the classic traditional fair play mystery is, we all write about ourselves and our experiences. But somehow it doesn't feel as soul-bearing when we clothe it in a mystery. You have two detectives, Sigrid Harold, who's repressed, and Deborah Knott, who is far from repressed. <laughs> Which one is Margaret Marin? I think they're both me, and they're both not me. I take aspects of my own personality. It makes it easier to do the writing. I was an extremely shy, awkward person when I was growing up. I had a deep sense of inferiority and a deep self-consciousness. I thought the whole world was looking at me and pointing fingers because I wasn't doing it right. And I remembered these feelings when I created Sigrid. She is the daughter of a very beautiful Southern belle, and she grew up feeling 
inferior to her mother's beauty, to her father's gregariousness. She was neither of those things. Later, as I grew older, and I think once you pass 40, you quit worrying about whether or not the world notices you or is paying any attention to you. And I have, I think, probably become more confident. And so Deborah reflects that. But Deborah is also a combination of my friends that I have down home, uh, my friends' daughters. And you use everything. You take little snippets from hither, thither, and yon. Deborah Knott is a judge. Yes. Have you spent many, many hours in the courtrooms of uh, North Carolina? Absolutely. And it is so fascinating. Uh, district court is the workhorse of the judicial system in North Carolina. I deliberately made her a district court judge because this is where all the action interesting action is, and it moves pretty fast. You you don't have a court recorder. You don't have a jury. The judge can only adjudicate matters in, a, in the civil side up to $10,000 and in the criminal side up to two years in jail time. And yes, I sat there in the courtroom for hours and hours. I also discovered that I was not going to become a lawyer. I was not going to go to law school. But I had been a secretary, and I know who runs offices. So I went to the community college and took a couple of paralegal courses, and that gave me the jargon and gave me a little of the expertise of how to go and, and serve a writ and how to do a deposition and have those terms to throw around. The first hundred pages of your previous novel, Southern Discomfort, virtually completely take place in the courtroom. Were those real cases? Some of them were real. Some of them were made up. Some were some that were told to me. I have a network of law official friends now, SBI agents, attorneys, judges, and they tell wonderful war stories. And some of them I just can't resist and say, yes, uh, some of those were real, and some of them are an amalgam of several different incidents. In Shooting at Loons, there is a girl who speaks through her puppet in a court. And, of course, mm -hmm. uh, Deborah Nodd at a certain point says, well, she may be telling the truth, but this is not admissible <laughs> evidence. You're out of here. Is that a true story? No, no. That one was made up. Dick Lupoff. First of all, tell us what the SBI is. Oh, I'm sorry. State Bureau of Investigation. And And – this, of course, is, is North Carolina. Yes, yes. Equivalent. I'm sorry, yes. Uh, uh -huh. I wonder if we have something like that in California. We have a state attorney general's office. Most states do have a Bureau of Investigation mm -hmm. in which they do the lab work for the for the whole state. I would assume, of course, California is so big, maybe you guys have two or three. Who knows? But most states that I'm aware of do have a, Bureau of, a state yeah. Bureau of Investigation. I know in Georgia they just call it the GBI. They will do the paint chip analysis and all the chemical things, the, the testing of drugs to see whether or not mm -hmm. they are actually drugs. They do fingerprint analysis, voice print analysis, um, the laser investigations. Yeah. And, all, all, and the all the forensics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned, if I get you to, to back up a little bit, that the in North Carolina, these district courts where there is just a judge, mm -hmm. 
And uh, a clerk. And, and a clerk, yes. But but as far as the judicial, there, there's no uh, there's, there's no, no jury. jury, and there is no court recorder. All you have is a judge sitting there reading the court papers and a clerk noting down what the judgment was. Now, this, as I say, is for the petty crimes and the petty civil dispute. If a defendant is a judge guilty and he does not approve, I mean, is not willing to go ahead and have the fine or accept the time, he can appeal. And then it goes to the superior. It's an automatic appeal if he wants it to appeal. And then he goes to the superior court, which is the next level up. And here is where you get your recorder, your jury, the whole thing. When you say petty crime, still, if someone is... Uh uh, called before this court and the judge finds that person guilty of an offense and says, you're going to the slammer for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to put myself in that person's boots. That doesn't sound petty to me. Well, it might not to you, but let's face it, uh, two years usually translates to two months. Oh, really? Sure. It does that all up and down the line. Life in prison is what, six years now? If you want to give someone life imprisonment real life, you give them like 300 years or something. Yeah, you give them three life sentences yeah. to be served uh, consecutively, not concurrently. Well, let's let's get back to uh, Deborah Knott, who is mm -hmm. a, a fa I found a fascinating person. How did she come to be a district court judge? Well, I made her a judge because I wanted somebody who was of the law community so that she would, if she got into a murder investigation, she functions as an amateur sleuth. And if she comes across murder, I wanted her to have access to deputies and sheriffs and, and be somebody who could go in and, and ask questions. But I made her a district court judge so that she would not ever be professionally involved in a capital case. Yeah. So that if she does meddle in murder, which she certainly does, being the type of personality she is, it would not affect the judgment of the case, the trying of the case. It would not no. um, have any problem there. I also made her a judge to begin with because I wanted to send her across North Carolina. Now, you all have a very big state here in California, but we have a very wide state. It's more than 500 miles wide, and it goes from the seashore to the mountains with all the gradations in between from the sand hills, foothills, Piedmont. And there's a whole lot happening in our state. It's, it really is changing from an agrarian state to a more technologically oriented. We used to be tobacco, soybeans, sweet potatoes, textiles. Now we're more and more phasing out those crops and going more into the high-tech, the, the biological, the, the chemical. And there's a whole lot going on that I'm not even aware of. And I thought, well, I will give myself a course on North Carolina at the end of the 20th century. District court judges and even the superior court judges sit in for each other at different times as they're sick or if they want a vacation. A mountain judge might ask a, a seashore judge to switch for two weeks. And one gets a mountain vacation and one gets two weeks at the beach. Shooting at loons mm -hmm. takes place uh, in the coastal area, in fact, yeah. largely on islands. Well, off of, um, yeah, across from Shackleford Banks, across from the Outer Banks. 
Harker's Island, which is where the book actually takes place, is right there at Beaufort and Moorhead City on the Intracoastal Waterway. There's a conflict in this book which uh, strikes me as, as really more interesting than who killed Uncle Waldo, which is the standard. Mm-hmm. Every murder mystery mm-hmm. is about who killed Uncle Waldo or, or right. some variation on the theme. But what we have in Shooting at Loons is a society in transition. You have some people that you portray uh, in great detail, uh, a very, very traditional lifestyle, not changed mm-hmm. in at least a hundred years, maybe several hundred years. Mm-hmm. And they, these are the fisher folk. Yeah, the indigenous watermen, yeah. Uh, they they almost speak a different kind of English, don't they? They do. They have the hoitoid accent. All the eyes become an O-I sound. And some people say that this is almost either a Cockney or a West England Elizabethan English. Others say that, well, yeah, it started off with the West England accent, but it's also because these people have lived in isolation. Harker's Island was not connected to the mainland until the 40s when a causeway was built across there. And the only way people got their mail was by the mail boat. And the fish boats used to come around and pick up the catch and take them back to the big packing houses over on Beaufort and and Moorhead. And these people have lived there in isolation for 250 years. Well, what about television and radio? I mean, over the last 50. Well, certainly there was radio, but I think television was probably didn't – well, it got there about the same time it got to the rest of the state, sometime in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of interbreeding there? Well, I don't think they would call it that. But certainly the families have intermarried for years and years. I mean, people don't marry their first cousin, clearly. But I forget how many families were actually on. And, of course, the boats you know, brought a lot of people. But I'm saying the easy access to the island was not available until the mid-40s when they built the causeway. What about the the racial structure of the island? Was it's it all, all white? white Anglo-Saxon. No blacks at all live on the island that I'm aware of, which may or may not be a problem. But as I said, the watermen have lived there for all these years, and now the rest of the state for the last few years have been discovering what a wonderful paradise, fisherman's paradise, and everything that it is. And that's what I wanted to show. I wanted to show all these different elements that are pulling at a dwindling resource as the rivers have become more polluted and dumping more pollutants into the estuaries, which is where they are. The estuaries are the nurseries for marine life. This is where the oysters spawn. This is where the crabs begin. A lot of the fish begin there. Some of the towns are dumping in fresh water. I mean, they really are trying to be good about treating their sewage before they dump it into the rivers. But too much fresh water is also no good for estuarine life. So as these resources dwindle, and I may have my figures exactly wrong, I don't have the figures with me, but I think that it was around the turn of the century, they harvested something like 600 million pounds of oysters. Last year, the catch was 300,000 pounds of oysters. I mean, down that much in less than 100 years. And as... The resources become fewer, and as you have the sportsmen 
what the islanders call dingbatters and dit dots that come down for the weekend. You have the sportsmen who resent paying three or four hundred dollars to come down for a weekend of fishing and there not be the fish that they used to pull out by the handfuls. You have the developers who think that there ought to be a finger canal through the marshland right up to everybody's boat dock. You have the the whole tourist industry, which is based on playing in the water, jet skiing across set nets, where the islanders are trying to put their set nets out to, to catch fish. It's been a real problem. And so little by little, the indigenous watermen are being driven off the water, and you can feel sorry for those. And I suppose... I probably come down more on their side than any other group. But nobody has all the answers. Even the islanders have not been good stewards of the water. They've dumped their old cars in it. They've used it as a bathroom and a dump and a kitchen and as a source of their livelihood. But they haven't necessarily been wonderful stewards right down the line. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody is totally white. Nobody's totally black in the whole situation. It's just a real problem. Well, what you're talking about, uh, the idea of of basing an entire book on a controversy like this, Mm -hmm. means that in a sense, you aren't just looking at the mystery. You are looking at the social uh, problems in North Carolina. But I don't want to be on a soapbox about it. I would like to make the people in our state aware of the fact that decisions are being made about our coastal waters that are going to affect us on into the next century. But you you, you don't do this on a soapbox. You do it with entertainment. If they can pick up on it, that that's what I'm hoping for. Did you deal with the social issues of New York at all in your earlier novels? No. No, they were pretty much the strict artificial aspect of the murder mystery. I, I had the characters and I had a setting and and they were the traditional puzzle problems. So so in a sense, the Deborah Knott mysteries are, are a quantum leap for you. I suppose you could say that, yeah. Because I was not a native New Yorker and I used New York as a back drop. Some people say that the city is almost another character in the books. But I suppose that I didn't feel it as deeply as I do about my native state. Do you do you live at all? Uh, do you have a house on those islands? No, but on the cover, there's a little yellow cottage pictured. This little yellow cottage was taken from an actual photograph that I sent the artist. And we have been going down to that same little yellow cottage for 30 years, and it belongs to a distant cousin. She's something like my fourth cousin, twice removed. And we've been going there for years and years and years, and I thought it would be rather neat to make them Deborah's cousins, too. In shooting at Loons, Deborah is more or less on her own, except for an old boyfriend from New York who comes down. Mm-hmm. However, Southern discomfort... Deborah has has a, an enormous, enormous extended family. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I 
People keep asking me, they want me to do a family tree for the books. They think I ought to do a, a genealogical table. And I keep saying, well, once I find out how many brothers she has, I'll be happy to do one. But I don't even know. Deborah is the youngest child and only daughter of an elderly father. She is the child of his second marriage. And she has at least 11 or 12 older brothers twins run in the family, so they're two sets of twins. I'm not even sure. She has nieces and nephews that are older than she is. Her father, in the first book, it was called Bootlegger's Daughter because her father was a bootlegger. He says he's not doing it anymore. Deborah believes him. I'm not sure if I do. He also says he's never killed anybody, and Deborah believes that. Again, I'm not sure myself. And that's going to be part of the fun of writing the series to find out what all these family members are up to. Some of her brothers are pillars of the community, go to church every Sunday, vote the straight Democratic ticket, the whole nine yards. Other brothers are a bit on the wild side. They've seen the inside of jails and not on sociological tours either. Are you yourself from a large family? No. I used to date a guy who was from – he was about – eight down in a 13-child family. And I found that endlessly fascinating, how those siblings interacted. I do have cousins. I have an awful lot of first cousins once removed, and not that many direct first cousins. But the family reunions are things that I grew up with, where you'd be in the middle of a 100 people, and they were all kinfolk. You refer to the mystery novel as an artificial form, especially mm-hmm. your your earlier uh, Sigrid Harold novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that in in the um, Deborah Knott books, you're moving in a different direction, away from that artificial form into something? Not totally away from it. When I say they're artificial, what I mean is there there is a form, and you do have to follow that form especially the kind of form that I use. In a traditional mystery, you have a crime. You have someone who must solve that crime to leave the reader with the sense that justice has been done. Now, this does not mean that good is automatically rewarded or that evil is automatically punished. But you do have to leave the reader with the sense that justice happened. And yet in these books, especially in the Deborah Knott mysteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do mix in uh, a great many contemporary social issues. I wonder then, uh, as you get response from critics and even more to the point from just ordinary man or woman in the street readers, mm-hmm. uh, how do they feel about do, do they resent? Do they say, hey, you're, you're preaching, cut it out and just No, because I think I put it several levels down. You do? I usually get that they think it's funny they think my that my writing is funny and they think Deborah's a hoot. They they love her sassy attitude and her cockiness is the only word for it. I mean Deborah's a mouthy person who's who's very comfortable in her skin. She was probably spoiled as a child in the sense that she was doted on being the only daughter in this large family of boys. But at the same time, she also had everybody looking over her shoulder all the time and criticizing her and critiquing everything that she did. So um, they're funny, I think, as well as being mm-hmm. 
sociology. So, so this this makes this makes Deborah a complex personality. I would hope so. Yeah. The thing is, Deborah really does want to be a good judge. The whole reason she became a judge, why she applied to run for judge or filed to run for judge, I suppose I should say, is that when she was sitting in the courtroom, one of the judges in a case that was being heard ahead of her case, the judge came down really hard on a black plumber who had blown a little bit over a 10 on the breathalyzer on a dark, rainy night when there was not many people on the highway. Nevertheless, the patrolman pulled him over and charged him with drunk driving. A white person might have been allowed to get off with a warning because it was such a close thing anyhow. This judge came down so hard on the black plumber, and Deborah's attitude was that a judge should be more lenient than that, that the whole purpose of punishment is to teach a lesson, not to crush someone's spirit. Her attitude is that if the mayor's son gets to do community service for a hit and run, then the mayor's cook's son ought to be able to do community service and not see the inside of a jail. Deborah really wants to do good. But she has these two voices in her head. She's got the pragmatist on one side and the preacher on the other. She grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. She, You never get over that hellfire and damnation preaching that you get as a child. So she has the voice of the preacher saying, you must do good. But she also has the pragmatic voice saying, well, okay, let's do good if we can also help ourselves at the same time. Have you heard from any judges who've read these books? Yes. What do they have to say? They love it. Every judge that has written to me really, really likes them. And what do they say specifically? You're, you're, you're accurate? or, or... I'm accurate. I'm, I'm right on top of it. And yes, this is the sort of thing that goes on in district courts all the time. Uh, the only cavell that I had from one judge down, or, or a lawyer rather, a law professor down in Austin, Texas, who was worried about Deborah's love life. She just didn't seem to have as strong one as he thought she needed. And uh, and so in Shooting at Loons, we take care of that. She has a pretty pretty good time <laughs> in this book. Um, do, you, do you think uh, you might get some of the opposite uh, response uh, from, from more straight-laced readers who feel that you're holding up this promiscuous woman, this loose <laughs> woman as a role model for uh, impressionable minds? Now, wait a minute. Deborah's not a slut. She's really Never not. Never said she was. Never said she was. <laughs> but, but, you know, do, do you encounter this response or think so you might? So far, I have not. So far, all the response on a one-on-one -on -one basis has been very positive, except you're right. I had forgotten. I did get one really virulent letter with the first book, which does have strong homosexual elements in it. She absolutely castigated me for writing this filthy thing. I mean, not that I ever showed any graphic love scene between the, the two lovers, the two male lovers, or between the two lesbians. 
she just was absolutely incensed and, and went on for about three pages about how filthy it was and how I really ought to be condemned for doing this and that condemned to read this book aloud to my nieces and nephews. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I could do that. <laughs> Richard Walensky. Uh, Margaret Marin, you were the, the, you're the past president of Sisters in Crime, and you've been very involved in the mystery community per se. Mm-hmm. Um, of, a year or two ago, there was a uh, Sisters in Crime uh, published uh, a report that said even though 30 to 40 percent of mysteries are women uh, authors, uh, maybe 15 percent are actually reviewed in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that in the past year or so, it's becoming increasingly difficult for men to get their mysteries published. <laughs> uh, has has it changed in terms of the New York Times? Uh, yes, the reviews are a little more balanced now. They certainly are as far as gender goes. And, and they're not quite in line with what we perceive of as being the number of books published to the number of books reviewed, percentage-wise. But that's okay. It's getting better. It's not just men who are having trouble getting mysteries published. They're women, too. The, the publishing industry is going through a big flux right now. A lot of the lines are shrinking. A lot of the houses have merged and some lines have totally disappeared. It's a tough time all over out there, even though mysteries are more popular than ever before. We don't quite understand why the bottom liners are are doing this to the industry because it really is a very popular genre. People are reading more mysteries than ever before. Also, though, a lot of women now we don't have the complete figures, or at least if we do, I'm not aware of it because I'm, I am no longer president of the organization. But the perception is that women buy more books than men buy. And women buyers have now discovered that they can be the hero of the story. They don't have to sublimate with a hard-boiled male, for instance, because there are hard-boiled women out there. If the men feel threatened... And I really don't understand why, because they're still outselling and they're more right men writers. But it might be that women are buying women rather than buying men. Are there statistics available? I find it a fascinating question. The the number of books by women, by men, the number of books featuring a female protagonist, a male protagonist, mm-hmm. um, the number of buyers who are women and men, the number of copies that they buy, the average sale yeah. per copy of these different books as we break them down. I mean, I'm not a mathematician or a statistician myself, but I find such things fascinating. And there are people out there who are keeping those kind of statistics. Well, let's get them to send them to yeah, us. Really, are, are they available? I'd like to send no, them. I don't know specifically. Publishers Weekly is the, the one who is trying to track this because they do like to know specifically who is buying, who's reading, who's doing what right mm-hmm. down right across the board because this does affect the industry in in the dollars and cents and it also shows how they will target an advertising campaign. It's not that we were anti-male. We have never Sisters in Crime has never been anti-male. It's just that we have been pro female and getting the woman's voice out there. 
and playing on a level playing field. That was really all we were ever after. And when we couldn't get it other ways, we just decided to do it on our own. We started learning how to network. We have learned how to self-promote. Sisters in Crime publishes a pamphlet, which I'm sure you're aware of, called uh, Shameless Promotion for Brazen Hussies. <laughs> because we're not taught, as certainly nobody my generation was taught, to be pushy and to to push yourself and to promote yourself. I mean, that was called a pushy broad if you did that. Nice ladies just didn't do <laughs> things like that, you know? Well, in, in fact, here at, uh, at Probabilities, we have found this to be a phenomenon, not necessarily gender-linked, that many, many authors feel that the publishers, they'll buy, this is, this is kind of hard to understand, they'll buy your book, they will publish it, but then they'll let it languish. Uh, they do promote mm -hmm. some books, but if you happen not to be the chosen author, absolutely, uh, you know the one who wins the favor of whoever that is up there in the executive mm -hmm. boardroom, your book can come and go with Without a trace. So this that authors, authors have, have started promoting themselves almost yes. as an act of desperation. Yeah. When you're a writer, when you write that first book and you turn it in and they've accepted it and they've given you real money for it, you feel like you have done your job and now you can go on your way and write the next book. You didn't realize that you were dropping a drop of a teaspoon of water into an ocean. And that was just about how much attention was going to be paid to it generally. As you say, a chosen few get decided that they're going to be the stars. Some people do take off like a rocket. And as soon as they do, the publishers are willing to throw a lot of money into promoting the successes. Not promoting the ones that nobody's heard of. They promote the success. And the more success you have, the more promotion you get. That may not be fair, but that's the way it works. It, it feeds on itself then. Yes, but it you've does. got to get it started. It's and so th the women who were not being promoted decided, hey, maybe we can do something to make it happen. So as I said, we started networking. We um, find out from each other where the, the mystery bookstores are and who the contact people are. Uh, we have done our own postcard mailings, our promotions. We, we do bookmarks. We do all kinds of little handout kind of things. Someone who writes a book that features a caterer or a, a diner might do a recipe flyer that says, and, and if you enjoy these recipes, you can get more by reading such and such a book. And it's working. It is working. And it's something that women can do because women are not quite as competitive as men in certain levels, in different ways. Carolyn Hart put it very well when she said, listen, our readers can read a lot faster than we can write. There is no way one writer is going to supply all the readers. So why should we be so terribly competitive? All we're asking for is to let us all have a shot at the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Margaret Marin, we've run out of time. What is Deborah not 
doing now? I mean, you have uh, shooting at Loons where she's off in the seaside. Is she going to the mountains now? She will eventually wind up in the mountains, and she will eventually wind up probably in every major part of the state. But at the moment, she's resting on her laurels because I'm working on a new Sigrid Harrell book at the moment. <laughs> Mysterious Press is going to bring out the backlist next year that's been out of print for several years. And they're going to start with the backlist, and they wanted a new Sigrid Harrell novel to go along with this. And right now, Deborah is having a well-earned vacation. Margaret Marin's next book was, as she said, in the Sigrid Harrell series, and Fugitive Colors was published in 1995. She wasn't to write another book in the series until 2017, Take Out, which was the last book she published. After shooting at Loon's, Margaret Marin would go on to write 17 more Deborah Knott mysteries. Despite the success of her novels, to date none of her books or stories have been made into film or television series, according to IMDb. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>